Receive now, or hear now, the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 10th chapter, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, or to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to make it plain for us to understand the words. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we go through these words, which are very indicative of words in Scripture that are quite divisive within the evangelical church, I pray that you will give me the words to tell them exactly as you have written them down, to find the, the thought of Luke, the, the way that the Holy Spirit was directing him, and, and what Jesus was saying when he said these words. And we will give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I just mentioned in my prayer, um, we are going to approach, well, this, this passage sort of throws us into, what, one of the doctrines that tends to divide the church. That it creates a lot of controversy among people, and, and even those who accept it don't perhaps understand it entirely, and, and that's, the, that's the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election, or, or predestination, as we sometimes call it. But I want to ask you something, whether you accept that doctrine or not, I want to ask you, when you think of God in that kind of a situation, when you think of God as being an all-sovereign God who is the one who chooses either to reveal himself or chooses not to reveal himself, when you think of the image of God in that way, what's the image that you have in your mind? What comes to mind? How do you, I know we can't picture God, but I mean, how do you think of him when you think of him in that way? Is, do you see him sort of as aloof or, or cold or, or distant or wrathful or, or in some way um, angry at his creation, judgmental and in that sense? Well, if you do, I fear that those who have sort of skewed this doctrine, who, who say that the only reason that they cannot believe in this is because it makes God a monster, and God could not be a monster. He's loving and kind. It would never, ever pass judgment on anyone. Well, I, I, I hope to turn that image on its head today, because that's exactly what Jesus does. If we read this carefully, and we understand what he is saying, we're not going to leave this place apologizing for God's sovereignty and election, we're going to be celebrating it. Because that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. 
You see, if we can look at this through the perspective of, of heaven rather than earth, and I know that's hard, it's really difficult for us to do, because we are creatures of this earth, but if we can just look at it from a different perspective, then I think that we are going to recognize that when God looks at his eternal plan of redemption, he rejoices. That is something that he is completely joyful about. And when he sees that redemption come to fruition, when he sees those who have been locked in darkness brought into the light, when he sees his own literally snatched from the jaws of the ravenous wolves, and when he sees, as Jesus just did in the text, we'll get to it in a minute, when he sees the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of evil simply crumbling before him, God celebrates. God's joy is inexpressible. And that is what I hope to to, to show this morning, that, that God's joy surrounds his plan of redemption and his his sovereignty in election. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, we are just finishing up, and this is the last part of a part of the gospel unique to Luke, where Jesus sends 72 disciples out into the surrounding areas to prepare the way for him, gives them the power to heal, but also gives them the message of the kingdom. And he tells them a little bit about the way it's going to be, describes the world as this great field full of wheat or a grain of some sort that's ready to be harvested, but the laborers are few, so he sends them out as laborers into this world into a place that is going to be dangerous because he sends them out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Now, he sends them out with marching orders. He tells them to travel light. He tells them how to stay, where to stay, how to react with their host, and the kind of ministry that they're going to be involved with. He also tells them, and this is quite significant, he tells them how to respond to those who receive his message. Now, we saw that there was a formula upon which the whole kingdom of God has been built. And it is when the missionaries of peace, peace being not the absence of conflict, but um, peace, shalom with God. When the missionary of peace shares the message of peace with a son or daughter of peace introducing them to the Prince of Peace, that's when hearts are changed. That's when lives are changed. That's when the gospel takes hold. And as Jesus is going to see later, he's going to see Satan's kingdom begin to fall apart before his eyes. Now, he gave very important instructions. He said, on some occasion when you go out and you share this message of peace, there are going to be sons and daughters of peace that receive it, and then your peace will remain on them. But they're not everyone is going to accept it. Not everyone is a son or daughter of peace. And those who do not accept you or your message, well, your peace will return to you. And, 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 and then he goes and he tells them exactly how to deal with these people who do not accept the message that he has sent them with. In other words, harsh judgment. And and he gave him a gesture. Go out into the street and shake the dust off of your feet. Which is a sign of actually cutting off of, of those who will not receive the Son of God. And basically what he says to them, if they don't receive you, then they're not receiving your message. And if they don't receive your message, they're not receiving the Messiah who sent you with that message. 
And if they are not receiving God's Messiah, they are not receiving God himself. And to not receive God's eternal redemptive plan is spiritual suicide. It's to cut yourself off knowingly. And so therefore, we asked ourselves a question. And, and this is getting down to where we're going to kind of be this morning. How does one become a son or daughter of peace? What do they have to do? Are, are they just more clever than everybody else? Are, are they just wiser and the more spiritual, more religious, more righteous? Are they more, in, more intuitive? Do they listen better? What is it that makes someone a son or daughter of peace so that they will accept the message of peace and not reject it? Well, it's not up to them. It's not something that they do. It is when God changes the heart. And we're going to see that exact same theme or trend developed this morning. So what I'm giving you is a little bit of a backdrop. Because when we start talking about God's sovereignty... When we start talking about selective revelation, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about, we want to have it in the background that this is not the first time this subject has come up in this sending of the 72. How on earth do people get to be sons or daughters of peace so that they will actually receive the message? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who makes people sons or daughters of peace. And then we saw something else, and this is very important, because when the, when the 72 came back, they're all excited because the demons were subject to them. And of course, that's when Jesus makes that incredible statement that he saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. But they're all excited, and Jesus said to them in so many words, well, that's fine to be excited about those things, but that's not where true joy is. True joy is to be found in the fact that your names have been written in heaven. Meaning your names have been written in the book of life. And we looked at that and we looked at the grammar. And we noticed that that verb written is in a perfect tense. Meaning that it is something that has been accomplished and finished in the past. It's been wrapped up. It's not going to be edited or changed. It is done in the past. And we also saw that it was in the passive voice. Meaning that the people whose names are in that book did not write them themselves. They were acted upon. God is the one who sovereignly elects those who he is going to reveal himself to. And so already that's on the table. That's already been established before we even get to this profound statement that Jesus is going to make. So with that said, let's jump into it and let's see what Jesus is going to say. There's three ideas all wrapped together that he's going to express in these verses. First of all, that of selective revelation. He's going to reveal himself to some, not to others. And then secondly, the preeminence of Christ, the exclusivity of the relationship and the universality of what God has played or what the Father has given over to him. And finally, the great privilege that the disciples have of being the ones who can actually see this. And so we'll get to that as we make our way through the text. I want you to notice before we see the words of Jesus, I want you to look at Luke's preface because it is vital. It, it, it sets the stage for the rest of these words. This is the way he starts it out. In that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Luke has been very vague about his chronology lately. He's been giving us these arbitrary designations of time. Well, here he gets very specific, and it's for the first time in a while. He wants us to know that this happened in association with the return of the 72. In other words, this isn't an isolated incident. This is something that is connected with what has just happened because it happened in this hour. When in this hour, he, meaning Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, that word rejoiced, it's a good translation But as Leon Morris, one of the commentators I read, said, it's colorless. It doesn't capture the fullness of what the word actually means. The word means exceedingly joyful. It means full of joy. It means overflowing with joy. It means an exuberance that simply cannot be defined in our own language. Peter, later on in his first epistle, tries to describe this. And I love the way that he describes this word when he says, it is inexpressible joy filled with glory. Inexpressible joy. Joy that we simply do not have the words to reflect. Joy that we can't, I can talk all day long and tell you it's the greatest joy, but my words, our language cannot capture the degree to which Jesus is rejoicing at this moment in time. That that is absolutely vital. Now, another one of the commentators I read says that this is the most exultant description of Jesus in all of Scripture. This is the, the most joyful you'll ever see our Lord. Okay, well, if, this, if that's true, then don't you want to know what he's joyful about? What is it that makes Jesus jubilant? What is he celebrating? What is he so overwhelmed, overflowing with joy that our human language cannot express it? It's just what we have just seen. It, it, it is what we have just uh, uh, witnessed. The 72 have come back. From going out into the world and evangelizing, going out into that great, huge uh, field full of grain, ready to be harvested, where there's wolves and danger and life-threatening danger. But they found, as they went from town to town, that the very demons were subject to them. Now, we, we, we didn't realize or we didn't actually know the answer to whether or not they were actually casting out demons or not. It wasn't part of their commission. But one thing we do know, it is the power of the gospel of Christ, the power of the good news of the kingdom that vanquishes evil. And so when they come back, they're all excited about the fact that they have actually seen soul after soul come out of the darkness. And then that's when Jesus said, I I saw Satan drop, fall like lightning from heaven. And we talked about that phrase and we talked about how the fact that it, it, it probably doesn't mean the actual fall of Satan because that happened before the foundations of the world, before the Garden of Eden. We know that for a fact. And so therefore, it wouldn't be actually in the context of what Jesus is talking about at the time. And in fact, Saul's not necessarily the best translation. The New American Standard says, I was watching. It's in an imperfect tense, which means that it's not something that happened once and it's over. It's ongoing. 
And so we form this image of a massive electrical storm coming across and lightning bolts just flashing over and over again as soul after soul is redeemed from the darkness and Jesus sees this, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of Satan that has held this world in its grip begin to fall apart. That's why he's joyful. He's joyful because he is witnessing the, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. A beachhead has been made. Light has entered the darkness. And the darkness will not be able to destroy it. And that light will flow throughout the entire world. And that light is still growing and flowing today. And that light lives in the hearts of believers. So Jesus is rejoicing in the redemptive plan of God. But notice this. It's not just Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. He's rejoicing in the Spirit of God. Okay? So that brings the the actual person of, of God into this. By the way, notice in this passage the reference to the Trinity You have all three members of the Trinity listed here. Jesus refers to himself as the Son, very rare in the synoptics. He refers to the Father five times, and Luke refers to the Holy Spirit. That's the triune God. Anti-Trinitarians want to say that there's no such thing as the Trinity because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, as if that benign statement disproved all the times that the Bible talks about the Trinity. Here you have three members of the Godhead, all of them persons with relationships with each other. That's the Trinity. And brothers and sisters, because Jesus, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit of God, who emanates from both the Father and Son, are rejoicing with inexpressible joy filled with glory, that means God, the triune God, is overwhelmed with joy when he sees his plan. Of redemption coming to fruition. It's an absolutely beautiful picture as we see God bringing um, all all of this uh, around. Now, I just want to ask you something. Let me go ahead and breach this subject. It really isn't my subject. I I know it's going to sound like it, but I'm really not here this morning to argue the doctrine of predestination. But When we see God this joyful over his sovereign, redemptive plan coming about, do you really think that he's just on the sideline like a cheerleader? He's saying, whoa, go, go get him, you know. And there's another one who made their decision for me. And not to see his redemptive plan that has been written since before the foundations of the world coming into fruition, coming real. That is what we're seeing, and that is what Luke, after all, has just revealed to us. Well, I know that's an awful lot of discussion on just the preface. Let's get into the actual words of Jesus, because this is what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Let's just stop it right there. I'm going to spend a lot of time here on this verse. I don't think that we're going to, you know, I'll move through the other ones a little bit more quickly. But he refers, he addresses his father. And he addresses him first as father. 
that, that's an anthropomorphism of sorts. I mean, the, the, the relationship, the filial relationship between the first and the second member of the Godhead are presented to us as a father and a son. And that's because that's something that we can understand. It doesn't mean Jesus was created. It is the relationship that exists between the two of them. And Jesus here refers to that intimate, close loving bond that exists between him and his father. That's the eminence of God. That's the Emmanuel principle. That is God with us. The father is with the son at all times. But then notice, he turns right around and he addresses him as Lord of heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, I cannot overemphasize this. Jesus is making it clear. Luke is driving it into us. That God is the sovereign God of the universe. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who made everything that is and everything answers to him. His eternal decree is inviolate. His word is inviolate. His will is completely sovereign. And so therefore it is his will through which we need to see the words that Jesus is going to say next. We need to see these through the sovereignty of God. And for that reason, brothers and sisters, we can't soften the words. We can't make them more pleasing to us. Because as soon as we start to soften the words, we diminish the sovereignty of God. In order to keep the sovereignty of God where it is, the words need to be seen exactly as Jesus presents them to us. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. That, that word, that phrase that he starts out, I thank you. New American Standard says, I praise you. It's an interesting word because it's actually a word that means to profess. And it actually carries both of those connotations with it. On the one hand, Jesus is praising his fathers. Praise you for your redemptive plan. But at the second, at the same word, he's professing it. He's stating it to be a fact. He's not arguing it. He's not apologizing for it. He is professing. And as that profession comes out, it comes out as praise to the father. A joyful praise for God's sovereignty in all of creation. Then he launches into this statement. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, there's a comparison there. First of all, we're going to ask ourselves, well, what does he mean by these things? Then we're going to look at the two groups that are being compared and the two actions that are being compared. Well, he says all of these things, so it's kind of important that we know what all these things are. What, what are all the things that he is thanking his father for in this context? Well, again, we don't have to go very far to look for that because we've already expressed it. Jesus is overjoyed because of the redemptive plan of God. He's watching the dissolution of the kingdom of Satan. He's watching lambs snatched out of the jaws of ravenous wolves. He's seeing all of this coming around, the 72 and all that they have learned on the mission field, the beginning of the end of Satan's kingdom, the evangelistic growth of the kingdom of God throughout space and throughout time. All of this is what he is saying, these things. But he's also pointing forward 
to these things. That he's praising God because in that praise is a profession. So I am praising and professing these things including your selective revelation. Because it is your sovereign pleasure to do so. Okay, so those are the things that he's talking about. Now, he's got two groups that he talks to. One, the wise and understanding, and the other, the little children. Well, first, the wise and the understanding. And I hope you recognize that this is ironic speaking on Jesus' part, bordering on sarcasm, because they're neither wise nor are they understanding. The, the, the word wise means exactly what it does. It means that, you know, knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is how to process or apply that knowledge and to use that knowledge for your benefits. Now, the kind of wisdom that he's talking about here is not true wisdom, but wisdom in their own eyes, wisdom that they think they have. I mean, James gets pretty definite about this in his epistle when he says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Okay, that's the kind of wisdom that these people have in their own eyes, their wise. They don't need a savior, in other words. They, they, they don't need the revelation of God. They've got it all under control in and of themselves. And he also talks about them as being understanding. New American Standard uses the word intelligent. The NIV uses learned. And it's one of those Greek words where actually all three of those are necessary to get the fullness of what that word says. There's a whole bunch of words in Greek that you just simply don't have a single word in English that you can translate it. And so it is, it is the intellect, it is the the scholarship, it is the learnedness, it's the study, it is the knowledge, but also the understanding, the comprehension of that knowledge. So once again, this is this is an irony, a tragic irony because thinking that they are wise, they became fools. Thinking that they have the understanding, they actually have no understanding. And if they were so wise and so understanding, then they would be able to look at the Lord as 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 the only path to salvation and put their trust in him, but they are rejecting him. In fact, brothers and sisters, these are these are the ones that earlier when Jesus said, when this town does not receive you, go out into the streets and shake the dust off your feet, that sign of, of judgment and cutting off. These are the ones that those words of woe were directed towards. Those who would not receive the message of peace and sent these people on their way. Now, when we talked about those words of woe, we talked about them actually being words of grace, actually being words that there's a second chance in that. It's a warning of the path that they're on being the wrong path. But now we're talking about a hiding of the revelation to those people. So in other words, that's the group, that's the first group. The other group are little children. And I think you know that Jesus isn't actually talking about little children. In fact, the word more commonly is used, not of youngsters running around in the playground, but of babes in arms, you know, absolute infants, newly born. So it, obviously he's not using this in a literal sense, He's talking about, and he often did this, he used children to refer to those whose hearts 
have been changed. Those whose hearts are open to the gospel. Those who are humble and, and mourn over their sins and are broken hearted and hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and are meek. These are the ones that are open to the gospel. Those who have been born again, as he would tell Nicodemus, literally becoming like little children again, dependent and needing the one who can save them. And I think a great example of someone who typifies both of these groups would be the Apostle Paul. There was a time in Paul's life when he was known as Saul, when he was a Pharisee's Pharisees, when he was persecuting the church, that he was the actual epitome of a man that you would say he was wise and understanding. He was a brilliant scholar. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel and learned from one of the finest teachers in all of Israel at that time. There was no lacking of his intellect and he didn't understand the first thing about the kingdom of God until Jesus knocked him off his donkey. And then he became like a little child. And then his heart was open and then he became humble. And then he realized how desperately he needed a savior. And he was introduced to Christ. He was born again through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. Now once again I want to ask you a question. How does one become a child? How do any of us in our fallen state, especially those of us who are adults, who are arrogant, who are... Um, wise in our own eyes, who are understanding, who have absolutely no use for religion or use for Jesus whatsoever. How do we become children? How do we become the ones that God is going to speak to, the ones that he is going to reveal himself to? Well, there's only one way. That is through the work of the Holy Spirit as he changes hearts and opens them to the absolute glory of Christ. Well, that's the two groups. Now let's talk about the action that takes place between those two groups. Depending on which group you are in, the wise and understanding will have these things hidden from them. While the little children will have these things revealed to them. Well, the word for hidden, it's pretty straightforward. It means to conceal. Or or, or in this context, to keep from being known, to make secret, to veil, to blind the understanding and eyes of someone so that they cannot actually see the truth. And what's more, brothers and sisters, this is in the active indicative. And I'm sorry to be technical this morning, but I mean, if if you don't pay attention to the grammar here, you're going to miss what this text is telling us, okay? And, and, and I think that's the reason people don't understand this is because they, they read over the text and they read into it what they want to see and they don't actually see what the text is saying. This is in the active voice, active indicative. And it means to hide or to conceal. What it means is that the one, the father that Jesus is talking to actively purposefully, with intention, hides his self-revelation from those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. Isaiah says it 700 years earlier when he is commissioned by the Father. And over and over again in Scripture, Jesus himself actually repeats what happened, what God said to Isaiah 
when he said, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. Blind them. Hide. Purposefully. Intently. Actively. Hide the truth from these people who think they already have it. Then he says the exact opposite. But reveal the truth to those who are like children. The word reveal is actually an antonym. If you were to take the two Greek words and say them, you know, the Greek words are really long. They're compound words. There's only three characters difference in these two words. So in other words, this is the exact opposite of the word to hide. It is the word to reveal. It means to cause something to be fully known or to bring to light. And in this context, it means to make known the knowledge of the truth about God through divine revelation. Let me repeat that. The revelation, the revealing that Jesus is talking about is to make known the truth about God through divine revelation. And, and, and basically, it is just the same. It is in the active indicative, meaning that this is something that is intentional. It is purposeful. It is something that is thought out by God who knows all things from all eternity past. So it didn't just happen by chance. Peter, I mean, Paul would talk about this. His first chapter of Corinthians actually goes into this quite detail. I just picked a couple of verses out of it. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the low and the contrite and and those who are like children to reveal himself to because he's prepared their hearts. So let me sum this up. Pretty profound statement that Jesus makes. It is the willful, purposeful intention of the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God of all creation to actively reveal himself to some and actively conceal himself from others. And if we soften those words at all, we diminish what Jesus has gone out of his way to establish, which is the absolute sovereignty of God in choosing who he reveals himself to. And who he doesn't. And so then he goes on beyond that. And he even says, Father, for such was your gracious will. Such was your will. And it is a gracious will that you have revealed yourself to him. So so how, how are we supposed to process that? I mean, here we have seen that God is overflowing with joy. And Jesus says, you're overflowing with joy and I thank you and praise you and profess the fact that you reveal yourself to some and you don't reveal yourself to others. But once again, God is overjoyed in seeing his plan of redemption come about. What is a gracious will? What does the word gracious mean? It means grace. It means mercy. It means that none of those that God is actually revealing himself to deserve it one bit. These guys didn't. We don't deserve it. God reveals himself to us through his own gracious will. He takes great pleasure in it. It gives him great joy. 
inexpressible joy filled with glory. Now, does that mean that God takes pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? No. In fact, Ezekiel says those words without question. God speaking, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in the spiritual suicide of those who hear the gospel and choose not to accept it. God doesn't take pleasure when people mock him and spit on him and trample on his gospel and deny his son and a, a, an, an entire eternity of his redemptive plan, God takes no pleasure when people take by their own volition refuse the only possible way that they can be saved. But brothers and sisters, that does not change one iota God's sovereignty in choosing those that he chooses to reveal himself to. And he takes infinite pleasure and infinite joy in that. Well, Jesus goes on to express the relationship that he has, very unique relationship with his father. And we are going to see both a a statement of universality a statement of exclusivity. Look in the 22nd verse. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And then another statement of selective uh, revelation, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. First of all, that universality that Jesus uses, all things have been given to me. What does he mean by that? What are all things? Actually, that's pretty easy, right? Is there anything that's not included in all? (laughs) Well, the Father is the one who ordains all that is to come to pass. He's the one that has the eternal decree, but he has handed over to the Son all of those things for implementation to bring them about. He is the one who has all things. I like the way that um, John MacArthur actually says this. It is everything and everyone in the universe, in heaven or hell or or, 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 um, uh, on the earth itself, involving every angel, demon, or person in the universe. That That takes everybody into its fullness. All of those things are the way that God, uh, that Jesus takes on all things. He's already stated this. Well, he will state it later, actually, in the end of Matthew and the Great Commission, when he says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Especially in John, he speaks of this, how the Father has handed all these things over to him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then, of course, in his high priestly prayer, as he's talking directly to his Father, he says, since you have given him, meaning himself, all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
Okay? I mean, it's just rife with the statements of God's sovereignty. So all things that God has given over to Jesus, very similar to all things that Jesus is already joyful about. The destruction of the kingdom of evil, the saving of the souls of the elect, the lamb snatched out of the mouths of ravenous wolves, the trampling on the serpent's head, the revelation of God's glory, of his self-revelation. All of this, the fulfillment of the plan, the perfection of righteousness, the atonement on the cross, the resurrection and ascension, the King of kings and Lord of lords, bringing all of that, ruling his kingdom, all of that has been given to Jesus. That's the the universality of the statement. And then he makes this statement of exclusivity. Very unusual for for the synoptic gospels. You don't find many, you see them all through John. But you don't find many statements like this where Jesus says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So basically what Jesus is saying is that God in his being is incomprehensible. He's unknowable except in the way that he reveals himself. That the Son knows the Father because He's part of the Godhead. The Father knows the Son because He's part of the Godhead. The Spirit emanates from both of them, so they all have intimate knowledge of each other. But there is no way for us in a fallen state that we are in that we can know anything about God except what He chooses to reveal to us. And of course, the great ways that He reveals Himself are through His creation, We see him all around us in the creation, although most wicked people want to ignore it and say that it all just happened by chance. But the main way that we see him is in his revelation, his special revelation, in his words. And that is where we come to know the Father. That is where we come to know who the Father actually is. Again, we get this exclusive relationship quite often in John In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, a closeness of that relationship. Jesus made it clear in his statements that only those who are drawn to him by the Father are actually going to be brought into that relationship. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. By the same token, no one can actually come to the Father except through the Son. Famously, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I hope you recognize something. I hope you realize something. This is the reason that the Jews wanted to stone Jesus. That's the reason that they hated him, because he was claiming to be the Son of God and making himself equal with God. And sure enough, that's exactly what Jesus did over and over again. He said, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You know, how can you say, show us the Father? Because you've seen me, you've seen me. I'm the radiance of God's glory. He's made that absolutely and positively clear. But this is totally unique to Christianity. James Edwards, another one of the men that I read, says that to his knowledge, and he's a really great scholar, he says to his knowledge, no founder of any other religion has ever made this kind of a claim to absolute exclusivity in knowing God. And you see, that's part of God's plan, is that he would send 
himself incarnate in human flesh to reveal to us his plan of redemption. My goodness gracious, it makes no sense when God takes on the attributes of a human and comes to reveal himself to you so you can know how to be saved and you say thank you but no thank you. I think I'll save myself. Those are the ones that, that he already has talked about here. And then Jesus makes another statement of exclusive selective revelation. Because he says at the end of that, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the one who makes the choices. I mean, there's, there's an amazing relationship. And once again, we, we don't have time to go into it. It, it, it. If you read the 17th chapter of John, and we studied it here in detail, it, I mean, it really it, it expresses this incredible relationship. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept... My words. So in other words, the Father gives to the Son, and the Son purifies and cleanses them and gives them right back to the Father as his bride to be presented before him. What an amazing story of redemption. That's why we are seeing this incredible joy in Jesus. Well, he goes on, and he turns now to his disciples and closes it out with this. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately. Apparently, he's been talking to a larger group of people here. There are some people that think that he's shutting out the 72 and turning to just the 12. I just can't see that. I don't pick that up at all from this. But nonetheless, he's turning from the larger group, and now he's addressing just his disciples when he says this. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now that word blessed, if you were here years ago for our study of Matthew, and that be those beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That word makarios in the Greek, that's the word blessed. It doesn't mean I'm imparting a blessing to you. What it means is you are in a state of blessedness. You are blessed because your eyes can see. You are blessed because your, your name has been written in the kingdom of God. You are blessed because like a child, God has made you a child. He has turned you into a son or daughter of peace so that you can receive the message of peace. Blessed are you of all people. He goes on to say, blessed are you because of what your eyes have seen as well. Look in the next verse. He says, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I'm going to make the the case that, oh yeah, these 72 plus the 12, they are really blessed. But do you realize how blessed you are? To have the word of God here and the illumination of the Holy Spirit so that you can see what God is about, where he can talk to your heart and explain all these great things to you that they wondered about. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, most of you know that, it's dubbed the, the Hall of Faith. 
And the writer of Hebrews goes through all of the Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Noah, Moses. And he talks about their, their, their ministries and what they knew and how God used them. But then he says this about them. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. On the earth. They never saw the realization. They never saw what these men are able to see. They never saw what you're able to see. They never saw God's redemptive plan come to bear. Although they were prophets and they wrote about it, although they were kings and the typological shadows of Jesus, none of them understood what was going on. That's what Peter says in his first epistle, the first chapter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The word that is used there is crane their necks to look. Trying to figure out how on earth is God going to work out this amazing plan of redemption. And you have been so privileged as to have been given the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And it's all laid out before you. Plus, you've got 2,000 years of scholarship <laughs> to help you understand what it means. Blessed are we. So what I'm hoping, brothers and sisters, is that perhaps we can change the image that we have of God. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes. Yes, God chooses. Yes, he does. He still wants us to make a decision, but he changes the heart so we can make a decision, so we can make a choice. We all have to make a choice for Christ. I mean, that, that's absolutely an, an unbreakable situation, but none of us have the heart to do it unless it is changed. Now, typically when you read this passage, at least in the commentators I read, they launch into a long discussion of Sovereignty of God and election, and predestination, and reprobation, and, and these kinds of things. In fact, Dr. Sproul, whose commentary I read, the entire chapter, start to finish, he barely handles any of the other texts. He just focuses on this idea of the election, the sovereignty of God's election. And he goes into Romans 9 and 1 Corinthians 1 and many other passages where that is spelled out. But as much as I love Dr. Sproul and admire him, I don't see that in this passage. I I don't see an argument for election. It's stated as a fact, folks. It's professed in joy by Jesus. It it, it is not. It's not defended. It's not argued. It's not questioned. It's not given as an option. It It is professed to us as an unalterable, unquestionable fact. A fact that God is infinitely joyful about. So that's the way I'm going to approach it. I mean, if you want to have an argument about whether or not God is sovereign in creation, I mean, first of all, you've got to go to Scripture and show me where it says that. 
But I'm not going to do that because that's not the focus that Luke is trying to get across to us. Luke wants to change our perspective. He wants us to see God in a different light as both sovereign and loving and joyful over his plan of redemption. So therefore, I'm going to celebrate. And I'm going to celebrate and be joyful because my Lord is celebrating and is joyful. I'm going to be joyful about the same things he's joyful about because that's exactly what the text shows me. I'm going to be joyful over his plan of redemption. I can't completely explain it inside and out and I probably have it wrong and all of us will get to heaven and find out that we've all made mistakes. But for what I know and the way it is revealed in scripture, I'm going to celebrate because it is the very essence of the joy of God. His plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, the victory over death, the victory over sin, the victory over Satan, the dissolution of his kingdom, the snatching the lambs out of the mouths of ravenous wolves to celebrate the miracle of my salvation and your salvation. I have no right to be here, and most of you know that. I have no right. I've never done anything worthy of God's salvation, of his redemption, of his gracious will. I am here as a product of grace and absolutely nothing else. But that is something rather than questioning, well, what happens to the rest of the people? God says, celebrate it. Be joyful about this. So I will say to you this morning, thank you, Father, for my salvation. Thank you for every soul that is in this room that you have saved. Thank you for the fact that you went to the cross to die for them. That you hung on that cross and experienced the wrath of God when it should have been me. Thank you that you've imputed your righteousness to me. So that I can stand before the presence of a holy father and not be destroyed. Thank you that you have prepared a place for me that, sir, that where you are there I may be also. Thank you that I will spend an eternity worshiping the one God of the universe who is joyful over me. That's why Brother Clayton read you that beautiful passage from Zephaniah. Because I want you to rethink your image of a sovereign God who chooses. And I want you to see him as a God that when you came out of darkness, when you flashed out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of light, exalted over you. And I leave you with his words. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. May God ever be praised.
Praise Him for His plan of redemption. Praise Him that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and God of gods, that He is the master of all the universe, and yet in His love and compassion, He chose me. He chose you if you're His. And He chose us before the foundations of the world were laid. And He faithfully brought us into His glory. When he added us to the kingdom, we became the very expression of the joy of God. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Lord, how do we put into words our thankfulness? We can't put into words your joy. So how on earth do we put into words our thankfulness for you, for what you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ? Once again, our heart breaks for those who don't know him. We desire to be your instrument, your words, your voice. We desire to do with these 72 men, go out and to tell people about the Prince of Peace and the message of peace. That is our desire. That is our hope. We would pray that every single person that we meet would accept your gospel, but we know that that's not your sovereign will. So we thank you for every single one that you have named. And the full knowledge that not one kernel of wheat in that vast harvest will ever fall to the ground and die. That every single last one of them will come into your kingdom. We give it to you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.